0: we you Hello everyone, welcome to the Food Lovers Elective, a CRAFT conversation series. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. So at CRAFT, we seek to foster a, transfer, a transformative regional food system in Western Pennsylvania that recognizes the central, um, central role of food systems in our society and values of the people who live and work within them. We envision a food system that is equitable, fostering fairness and transparency across the value chain, a system that is sustainable, actualizing economic, social, and cultural well-being as part of the food system, and a food system that is inclusive, valuing dignity, sovereignty, and the inherent power of all people. So today's episode is Big Kid Lunchbox Topics, Nutrition, Sustainability, and Values in Food Procurement. Our student moderator is Lexi Bard, a graduate student with Chatham's food studies program. She is going to be talking with Malik Hamilton, a Chatham alum and the current production and purchasing coordinator for the food services department at Pittsburgh Public Schools. This episode will take about an hour with the last 10 to 15 minutes reserved for Q&A. Um, please feel free to chat with us throughout the uh, throughout the episode, um, you will be able to chat with us or send us your questions through the Q&A um, option on the bottom of your screen. So we hope that you guys enjoy this um, discussion and I will now hand it off to Lex. Hey
1: everyone, all right, nice to have you here. My name is Lexi Baird and I'm a soon to be second year here at uh, Chatham University in the Masters of Food Studies program. And I started this program really wanting to figure out what a sustainable food system can mean. And I'm still in the process of figuring that out. It's a huge question. Um, Some of those components to defining that are like, how does food get to people? Does it get to people? Uh, Where does free school lunch come from for kids? And how does that look globally? Um, As well as like social justice in different areas of the food system. And so that is kind of what's influencing this conversation. Um, And a branch of that is what we're gonna talk about today with Malik. And as Ani said, Malik uh, works at the Pittsburgh Public Schools as the procurement supervisor. He's also a Chatham alum, which is really cool. Uh, He's a food service industry expert, and he has skills in food service management, production, and procurement. He's also on the Pittsburgh Regional Food Service Director's Bid Committee, and um, yeah, his uh, goals are to provide high-quality food for uh, Pittsburgh public schools, which is really, really cool. And so, given that you're a change maker right now in the food system, Malika, I'm really excited to talk to you about your work and the larger role that you and I can play in the food system. So welcome and thanks for joining me in this conversation. Um, So we're gonna start off now. uh, What are your pronouns and is there a fun fact about yourself? Uh,
2: Yeah, uh, my pronouns are uh, he, him, his. And the fun fact, so I I talked to my wife about what I should say if, if this came up um and she said that i should say that um i applied for and got accepted to grad school without talking to her first <laughs> and that was that made that was kind of interesting
1: hey you did it it all that's worked out we moved <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's good um i, don't, and I that, don't
2: recommend it for anyone else
1: yeah I mean, communication's important, (laughs) but um, what curiosities did you have about the food system after your time here at Chatham? And did those kind of influence you and your job at Pittsburgh Public Schools?
2: Um, I don't know particularly what curiosities I had other than I was even more uh, amazed at all of the complexities of the Mm. food system. Mm -hmm. Um, Having worked in food service for a bunch of years before that, I I was aware of some things, uh, but not quite to the extent that I I was after I I graduated from Chatham. Yeah, Um, And it, my, and actually kind of works uh, opposite. So I actually got this job while I was working on my thesis. Mm. Um, And so as far as influencing my my current curiosities. It was my job that um, has gotten me to thinking about things that I wasn't thinking about prior to graduating.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think that's what's really fascinating about food is that it's so much more complex than you could ever imagine. Um, So yeah, we're gonna uh, roll into some of these questions about uh, your role at Pittsburgh Public Schools. Um, So from what I understand, the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, it places requirements on um, food that can be fed to students and nutrition. Um, But I am guessing that's not the most easy thing to coordinate. So, I guess, how does the USDA put guidelines on the choices that you make in your position?
2: Yeah, you bet. So, um, there's a couple distinctions there. So, first of all, um, all of the USDA regulations are tied to districts that are participating in the National School Lunch Program, the National School Breakfast Program, you know, those, those federal feeding programs. There are a lot of districts in the country that do not participate. And so they have um, more flexibilities in what they serve um, on a daily basis. Um, mm-hmm. Pretty much they can serve whatever their district has determined as being uh, acceptable. Mm-hmm. Um, through the USDA, so it's the Healthy, Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act that um, all of our regulations come through. Um, and so there are regulations on uh, from a nutritional standpoint, there's there's a uh, sodium and calories. Um, we have to hit uh, serve different types of vegetables throughout the week. Um, so really, the, the entire plate is is uh, regulated in some way by USDA regulations, um, and it mm-hmm. can be very difficult to to meet those because. Um, so the the example that we often give is that. You know, you have to have a, a red, orange and a leafy green and you have a legume and all these different vegetable uh, parts. But occasionally you end up where you find yourself having to menu like peanut butter and jelly with with uh, baked beans or something And you know, things just don't fit sometimes yeah.
0: when
1: you're
2: trying to put together a menu.
1: Yeah. So I guess then how do you balance like nutrition and uh, good tasting food or things that kids will eat with those requirements?
2: Uh, it can be tough. Um, we have a lot of conversations about how we don't end up putting, you know, baked beans with with peanut butter and jelly. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, uh, partly also, so our structure of our of our department. Um, occasionally, you get stuck where you're juggling all these balls, and you have to account for labor and production time, and so you end up where you're like. Well, that's not the best possible combination of food, but we also have to hit these regulations.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: as often as possible, we try not to serve anything that wouldn't, that you wouldn't normally serve at your house together. Um, and, and most of the time we're successful.
1: Is there uh, an example of like a really popular um, plate,
2: Um, I think our most popular item, uh, year in and year out is we do a walking taco. Oh, taco meat and and chips and cheese and, and all of that good stuff. That's one of those, um, that they've had, they had at the district long before I got there and I imagine that we will never actually remove it from the menu.
1: Yeah, that's fun. I love those. (laughs) Um, and so to what extent are kids involved in the menu making process or like, Purchasing process?
2: So we uh, try and engage the students as much as possible, and we continue to try and um, increase that. Uh, our, our goal is to, at some point, have a day on the menu um, at least every other week where we are testing um, products throughout um, grade categories. So there are some items that we um, only serve at maybe the middle school, high school level. Um, and, and things that we only serve at the, the elementary level, just because there's some some pallet things that the littler kids aren't going to take to as much as the large, the older kids. Um, so that is our goal is to, for it to be just a regular part of our menu cycle. Um, right now, as we find new things that we want to, to test out, we will put all that together. We'll choose two or three or four schools um, And we will, over a course of a week or so, go out and and have somebody there with samples of that item, let the students vote on it. Um, And then, you know, depending on what those overall acceptability votes are, we'll determine if we put that on the menu or if we need to go back to the drawing board on it. Uh, We also work, the, the superintendent has a student advisory council. So we work with them um, a couple of times a year and kind of get some feedback from them. And we use them as ambassadors um, in the cafeterias when we are doing testing and and just kind of getting feedback from the students because sometimes it's easier to voice your concerns or ask questions of of one of your peers than an adult um, who you might think isn't really listening. Um, And then we also do a food show every January at the end of every January And we invite um, a lot of students, um, you know, the Student Advisory Council, there are a couple other student groups that we invite to come in um, and and walk around that food show. It's held in our central production facility. uh, So they meet with brokers and vendors from different manufacturers that we may be partnering with or that would like to partner with us. Um, We also bring in A chef from our distributor who's who will make something you know fresh idea that we're thinking about or would like the students feedback on uh so they get all of that experience as well and we take their feedback and that's part of our decision making process for the following school year
1: that's so fun i had no idea that happened uh wow it's really important to have their input obviously because they're the ones eating the food um yeah (laughs) and then uh do you think that, um, and I'm asking this because I my thesis plans have shifted a little bit. So like, um, do you think the school has a role in shaping the way that kids think about food in society?
2: I think yes, whether it's planned or not, we, we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's better if, if we can plan it and be a part of um, the educational model, right? Um, build, some, some more food knowledge and nutrition knowledge into the curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have a community partner um, that, we have uh, several actually that, that go into this, the classroom, some of the classrooms and they're, they're teaching nutrition um, or um, like we work with Roe Pittsburgh and they manage um, a bunch of the, all of the, the school gardens that we have. Um, we're, we're right around 25 schools with, with gardens Um, And so part of that is that they work with um, students that are involved with that to teach them about that process, that growing process, and and why uh, fresh produce and and things like that. Um, And then we have Adagio Health that actually goes into some of the classrooms as well and teaches nutrition. So um, we'd love to be more involved in that. It requires us to be able to find some teachers uh, that are willing to to build that into the curriculum and and kind of supporting that as well.
1: Yeah, it definitely takes a lot because I feel like food in general isn't something that is deep dived in everyday teaching. So, um, and now I'm going to ask about your thesis, um, which I read a little bit of it and uh, it discusses um, value-based supply chains, which is something I'm super interested in um, at Allegheny County. And uh, you focused on nutrition and good food and procurement. And um, now you're at Pittsburgh Public Schools and you're also a part of the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council, which is really fascinating. Um, So I guess, could you talk a little bit about the big issues in your thesis um, and then kind of how, how how Pittsburgh Food Policy Council is influencing your work now.
2: Yeah, you bet. So um, first it, it amazes me that people actually read my thesis. Every, <laughs> so often I, every so often I'm in a meeting and somebody will reference my thesis and it just boggles my mind. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and there I, I, so I had done an internship at the health department um, Looking at, we we're tracking um, policies, um, food food-centered policies, um, and through some conversations that I had with my mentor at the time, um, when I was doing that internship, we kind of hit on this idea of, of value-based uh, procurement for food at the county level. Um, and so I started. I decided I wanted to do my thesis on that, sort of digging into it. Um, it talked a lot about some of the bigger things I talked about in there was um, how that could all be tied into an overall higher wellness policy, not only for county employees, but um, the community at large. So the county does a lot of um, food-based procurement through uh, they have this, the cane centers, um, they have the, the jail, um, there are different, you know, the city county building does some. There's concession stands at swimming pools and around the, the whole county. So they're, they're spending a lot of money on food. And so it was a conversation about how do we better um, use that money to, to change the food system. And um, it was all really interesting. At the same time that we're having that conversation, there were some folks on actually on the county executive board who were asking that same question. Um, uh, and so those are things we looked at We talked about one of the things that I suggested in there was to start small right so pick one one location you know if it's the jail say you know maybe you're, you're spending you're buying 40,000 pounds a year of potatoes so then get with a, a farmer or, or even two and say we're, we need you know up to 40,000 pounds we're going to guarantee the sale and then um, start that's the process to start to start really small and then see how that works, iron out all the bugs and then go forward from there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Like being able to pair who's local and uh, having them contribute to this larger food system chain. Um, And then, yeah, rounding back to the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council stuff, how has that been and, and what kinds of things have you learned or contributed in that work? Yeah,
2: so the Food Policy Council is one of our bigger um, partners. So we have, we actually partnered with them and Grow Pittsburgh um, three years ago, so was 2017 to 2019, I believe, on the um, on a farm to school grant. So we got a $100,000 farm to school grant through the USDA uh, we were able to uh, we started a harvest of the month program where we highlight a different vegetable every month on the menu. So be it um, through salads that we offer or um, a side vegetable, something like that. Um, so that's a good piece, and there's an uh, educational piece that goes with that as well. Um, they are a big part of our current good repurchasing purchasing policy coalition. Uh, they're actually kind of the the base for that. So they pulled. Um, a lot of different folks from different uh, areas of the food food chain, and um, brought them to the, the table so that we could have this discussion about uh, good food purchasing at Pittsburgh Public Schools and what that can look like, how we get the policy in place, and then um, that whole that same coalition will continue to come together after the policy is in place to help put together goals and and look at where we started and where we're going and how we can continue to get better at. Uh, value-based purchasing at the at the school district.
1: Yeah. Um, I guess just to zoom out for people who might not know, can you kind of explain what good food purchasing policy entails? And then how do you? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead.
2: <laughs> so um, I first I was working on my thesis that I found the good uh, food purchasing policy that actually started in LA. So the LA Unified School District um, in LA County. Um, wanted to make some changes to the way that they were purchasing and wanted them to be kind of long-standing. And so they put together this program that's actually based off of the LEEDS program for um, architecture. So Mm -hmm. there are various standards, um, some of which, you know, nutrition, local economies, uh, environmental sustainability, uh, fair labor, things of that sort. Um, They've got five of those, and then you are able to, once you become a part of this this program, um, they help you do a baseline assessment to look at where you're at on all of those categories and you can certify at different levels. Uh, and then being part of that, there are kind of benchmarks that you're trying to reach every year over a series of years to try and better the way that you are purchasing uh, food for your, be it your school district or their cities, counties, um, whatever it is, whatever institutional-based uh, purchasing organization has, has signed up. Um, and so they've been a huge part of that for us. Um, and we, you know, right now we're working on the, the draft language for that, because if you say, you know, we're gonna purchase humane food, well, what does that mean um, in, in the larger scope? What does it mean here in, in, in Pittsburgh and Southwest Pennsylvania? Um, in that region and, and kind of talking through all of that.
1: Yeah, um, do you think that using the influence of this good food purchasing program model, um, do you feel like you have to compromise on things or like at what points do you have to push to make those kinds of changes in how you buy food?
2: So I, I imagine at some point, I mean, all policy has some compromise in it, right? So mm-hmm. we will get to a point I think where we're going to have to make some compromises um, and make some realistic goals based on the capacity of the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even so, we've even though we've been the policy isn't in place yet, we have been working to put things in in place to fit the policy um, so that we're not starting from scratch. So. One of the, the big things that has happened recently, a couple of big things that happened recently, uh, we worked with our uh, with Turner's Dairy, who is our our milk provider. Um, one of the concerns, you know, with both the USDA regulations and with the nutrition piece of our good food purchasing policy, uh, is sodium levels.
0: Mm-hmm. And the,
2: the the fat-free chocolate milk that they had had a, a large amount of sodium in it. And so, about a year ago, we reached out to them and said, you know, these are the, the sodium targets, and this is the sodium in, in your chocolate milk. This is the sodium in competitor chocolate milk. Can we find a balance? And they, um, over the course of that year, were able to work on their formulation to a point where they reduced, they pulled about 150 milligrams of sodium out of their uh, fat-free chocolate milk. It's now in, um, it, it's in balance with, without everything else that's out there and what we need it to be. Um, and and that was a great thing. So it's great for not only us, but now other school districts around the area that are looking for lower sodium, fat-free chocolate milk um, have that option. Mm-hmm. We also work with them. We also buy our juice from them as well. And so um, their grape juice. We already know that they um, purchase that majority of that. The grapes for that juice um, in the, like the Erie area, the Northern Pennsylvania area. Um, and so we're working with them now to see if we can't also. Um, either change the formulation to make sure that it's at least 51% Pennsylvania grapes um, or find out that it is actually 51% and be able to label that as local. Um, So we're already kind of being able to make some changes that way, uh, which is super cool and, and a lot of fun to see happen.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the biggest impacts that might happen from even just using your position. It's like it's really important to be able to change things so that like the sodium levels in the milk, I had no idea, like you have to have these restrictions from USDA, but then you have to source it from the right place. And it's a lot to balance. Um, It's just fascinating to learn about. And I guess, uh, what are your hopes for the future in making, more decisions like this?
2: Uh, my hope is that we will bring a lot of people in the region on board as far as understanding what this is and, and making some changes. So um, we are working, so our, our current uh, produce vendors, Paragon Foods, um, which you are familiar with, I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> But we also have done work in the past and continue to work with uh, another larger distributor, uh, Montevere, here in, in the region.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, so we always have these conversations with both entities about where can we go? Um, and how do we, um, those that aren't maybe necessarily at the same level as like a Paragon, how do, we, how do we help you to kind of move forward so that you're lining up with the good food purchasing policy? Because even if, you, if they never win um, our bid, Mm -hmm. um there they'll become a better organization for those that they do service Mm -hmm. right and so that's how we we, because pittsburgh public schools is the second largest in the state and it's it's like philly on Mm -hmm. on the coast and us in the west um we kind of feel a bit of a stewardship in this side of the the state to open some doors for some for the smaller districts that maybe couldn't make those changes on their own And it's cool because, you know, sometimes with policy, you think, oh, there's, this is gonna be a fight. And, you know, you you kind of fluff up your feathers so that you can go in and you're gonna tell everybody, this is why it's important. And this is why you gotta do it. And I have found sometimes you just have to ask and they're like, oh yeah, that sounds great. Let's do it.
1: Yeah, it's good to know. I think as sustainability becomes more present then it's not that, new of an idea to talk about with people, which is really cool. Um, And so uh, this idea of sustainable consumption is one I want to bring into the conversation. Um, When we're talking about the food system and uh, how we've been talking about food procurement and like getting food for schools, um, I think everyone has a place in the food system and we can make choices as as consumers or in your position, wherever you're at, whether it be Pittsburgh public schools or somewhere else and organizations and institutions can do more to support those sustainable practices in the food chain. And um, to me, this sustainable consumption means making decisions and getting food, but like influencing like the good food purchasing policy practices of, uh, ethical, environmental regulations, and society and social justice. Um, and so, I guess, how how would you define sustainable consumption for like your position in as a procurement person?
2: <laughs> um, the short answer is doing the right thing, mm. just because it's the right thing. Uh, So that's that's something that we talk about in the department a lot is, well, if we do this, you know, what are these people going to say? What are those people going to say? You know, this, that and the other. And and at some point it's like, well, it's the right thing to do for either our students or for our our operation or our district. Um, So we should just do it because it's the right thing to do. And we don't necessarily have to put out a press release that we did it. You know, not everything has to be is, is newsworthy. Um, and, and so that's, that's part of that. So when I think about sustainable consumption, that's the first thing that I think about is, is, is it right to do and just do it? Yeah. Um, the other part is so sustainability for us as a department includes, uh, can we sustain it um, financially for long term? Can we, can we sustain it? Is the, is the capacity there for us to, to continue to get this certain product um, that we find is sustainable. Um, are the students going to enjoy it long enough? To, so we, we deal with a lot of menu fatigue. Mm-hmm. So if I bring in, you know, 50 cases of item X that's, you know, local and sustainable and no GMO, you know, hits all of the, the check boxes, right? Mm-hmm. But the students get bored with it, 10 cases in, you know, a couple of months in well then you know we spent this money it's now cost us extra to buy that item that you know looked great and sounded nice but it's not sustainable because the students aren't going to eat it mm-hmm. so there are a lot of different pieces I think when we talk about sustainability we always talk about think about like the environment and and you know I mean uh, husbandry and things like that but sometimes it goes into can you eat, is, is anybody going to eat it because if <laughs> it's just going to end up in the landfill, then you've really kind of shot yourself in the foot.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, that's one thing that is really important when we talk about sustainability and defining sustainability is like, you can't forget the people aspect of it. And um, yeah, I think thinking about menu fatigue is, I've never thought about that. But then At the same time, like when I tried a meal plan, it just, it happens. (laughs) It's just human. Um, And so uh, I guess in an ideal world um, with no restraints or as much money as you could have, how would you at um, Pittsburgh Public Schools try to tackle everything and like, I don't know, make good food purchasing happen?
2: I mean, if, if, we had, you know, endless, endless, uh, money and, and resources, um, we would, we would kind of, we'd do the same things that we're trying to do now, only mm-hmm. we do it much faster and, and maybe on a grander scale. So, um, right now the conversation that we're having. So once upon a time when the district was much larger, um, our central production facility actually created a majority of the meals Um, inside of that, that building. Mm -hmm. When um, economies started to, to crash and you know there, there have been a couple large um, crashes over the years. Um, There was a point where the decision was made, or the conversation was had whether it was financially better to kind of move over to more processed items, which is where the, the industry and the market was going at the time, or to continue to try and maintain this large facility into the equipment and, re, and re, uh, replacing things as they were breaking down. <clears throat> um, we're ironically right now, everything is trying to circle back to the way it was. Um, and of course, you know, things cost a lot more to, to get as far as machinery and, and that stuff. And so, if we had infinite funds, that's where we would probably do that as an infrastructure that make it would make it easier to do more scratch cooking and more fresh produce. Um, you know, we'd love to be able to have a facility where we could buy fresh produce in the summertime and, and process it into, you know, sauces and, and side vegetables or whatever through the summer and have that available through the winter because that's the tough part about uh, school food, right? It's that when everything is fresh and lovely and delicious on the farm, all of our students are at home. Um, yeah. and we're not serving at the same level as we would be in November, December, January. So
1: yeah, um, do you, I guess, yeah, that's a really challenging question is including seasonality is very difficult. And um, utilizing foods that have been pre- preserved or something like that's just a whole extra layer of bringing in uh to the planning aspect of it um, and i d- i guess just to expand um what does your day to day look like and uh i'm i'm asking that just so maybe people can see um Further into how all of these choices and these big ideas are made at a real-time person's position.
2: Yeah, you bet. So I don't actually have a typical day. Hmm. Um, we there is always something new, I feel like. Um, we joke that we can find a new way, a new, a new problem to solve every day if we really put our minds to it. Hmm. Uh, but there, you know, there's always going to be, we have 54 buildings. Mm. So at any given time, one of those buildings can have a concern or a problem. Um, a, a freezer or a cooler can go down. Mm. Um, and then, you know, what do you do with that product? How long is it going to take to replace, to repair that, that freezer or that walk-in cooler? Um, mm. do, I have to have, do I have to send a driver to a building and pull all of that food out of that building and bring it to our warehouse and then take it back once it's fixed? Um, then how do you feed the students at that building. Mm-hmm. Right. So if I have to take all of their food out of their building, then how do we then feed them until all that food can be put back. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of that I have, you know, I have a big uh, we call it. Our, I call it my crumb board where um, I just I have a list of various categories of things. And then I, every time I everything that I need to be working on is put up on that board and uh, we move it back and forth based on urgency constantly working you know we've got a dietitian who works on their menus um but you would think you know if you're writing right right now she's writing the august menu you think oh that's you know a couple of days you write the menu you put it up. and it, it's usually by the time she gets the next month's menu done we probably she has to almost immediately start the menu after that mm-hmm. just because of the time that it takes um we then have to sit down with production and say okay how does this going to work out? Is the production schedule going to fit this? What do we need to move around? Um, I also, again, because we're so big, so much bigger than most of the school districts and other institutions on this side of the state, um, Mm -hmm. our supplier doesn't always have enough of a product on hand. So I actually, so during the school year, let's say, so on September 1, I will actually give them our forecast and place some of our orders for October.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. So our our food service, our our dietitian always has to be that far ahead. There's also um, the timeline of K-12 food service in general is such that um, so we have to we get federal funds from USDA every year. Um, They're called commodity dollars. Um, But we have to tell USDA that we want them to send um, chicken to to rich chicks um, in this quantity and we're going to use cheese from Land Lake in this quantity. Um, We have to do all of that in March, um, late March, early April of the previous school year. So this coming March and April, we will tell the USDA what food we're planning on using for the 22-23 school year. Right, so by February, the, the dietitian has to have some sort of working cycle menu in place so that we can actually do the, the forecast for that. Yeah. And then of course that it changes, you know, from February to, to August, there are going to be changes. Um, but those changes have to happen within the, the manufacturers that we have already chosen. So we can very easily get pigeonholed that way, um, and so that's that's the one thing I think that people don't understand about K twelve food service is that we operate months and months and months in advance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when, when we've had to train manufacturers who want us to use their product in the summers, if you haven't come to me in like February or March, I've we've already made not only we already built the summer menu and talked to, you know, everybody involved with that. Um, But I've already put in orders to the distributor so that we have food products available to us in time to do summer. Yeah. Uh, Which is not, you don't see that anywhere else in the food service industry.
1: That's a lot of planning. (laughs) I had no idea. And a lot of pre-planning. And I mean, I can't even imagine when things like COVID happen. Like you have no clue what's gonna happen in the future. And all of that time it takes to plan and buy and store. And it's a lot of logistics. Um, Who knew? COVID
2: rocked our world. Huh? (laughs) COVID rocked our world. It really, really rocked our
0: world.
2: We're gonna feel COVID probably all the way through this entire school year and maybe a little bit into next Oh my goodness.
1: that's so that's just a tragedy <laughs> um well thanks so much for uh sharing about your position and all of the things that it takes to be able to do what you do i think it's it's fascinating and um definitely eye-opening for sure And uh, I guess I just wanted to wrap up with some questions. Um, Did you ever see yourself as someone who would do something like this?
2: Um, No, not at all. This was never on my um, radar. Uh, There were a lot of things that I thought I was going to do before I got to Chatham. And there were other things that I thought I was going to do as I was wrapping up at Chatham. um, And I'm in this place that I never thought I would be.
1: Yeah. It's kind of how life goes, I think. <laughs> um, are there any suggestions or advice for students um, like myself who are really yearning for a way to bridge the gap between like, what do we learn at school? And then how do we actually apply this in the real world?
2: Um, so one thing I would say, you know, based on my experience is be open. So there are opportunities to be a part of something. Um, so say you're interested in K-12, uh, you don't necessarily have to work for a school district to be involved in, in the K-12 food service space. Um, you know, just locally, like the Pittsburgh Food Policy Council has a couple of different positions that we work with, or not the policy council, the, the food bank has um, several positions you know, that we work with uh, a lot about feeding students. Um, There are organizations like the Dairy Council, National Mm. Dairy Council, that do a ton of work for us in the K-12 space and and provide Mm. us with blenders for making smoothies, and they sponsor events, and they, I mean, they do so, so, so much for us in the K-12 space. So there's, there are a lot of options, and I think that's going to be the way in any industry, Um, as far as food is concerned, is uh, if there's something that you really want to do, try and think outside of that core and and say oh what about this or maybe they're getting it from there and maybe I can be a part of it that way um yeah that's my thing is kind of keep it open
1: yeah that's really good advice is like um try to imagine a different way that you can learn about what you're interested in which is really fun. <laughs> and then, are there any suggestions for people who might not know that they have a role in the food system? Um, do you have any suggestions for them?
2: Um, well, I think everybody has a role. I mean, if you eat, you're in the food system. Um, and so I would say start at your plate, right? And think about what's on my plate and what am I eating? You know, where did it come from? Um, and who, who grew it, who, who mm. processed it, like how does it end up on your plate um, and kind of work backwards from there and start having conversations with people. Um, not only you know if you have access to a, a local farmer, talk to them about what they do and you know they, they plan almost as far in advance, maybe further in advance than I do in food service. Um, so they, you can have kind of interesting conversations and you'll learn a few things and you can share that and it might change the way you Um, the decisions that you make as far as the food that you purchase and and how you purchase it and and things of that nature.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, That's a really good piece of advice is like, what are you even eating right now? And look, look and see where you've gotten those and what choices you can make. Um, So I'm going to go through some of the questions in the chat with you. Um, Okay. And I think I'm gonna start with, uh, let's see, Laura Valentine um, was curious to hear about the COVID response at Pittsburgh Public Schools. Um, and so I'm gonna, we're gonna start there since that was one of the most recent things we talked about.
2: So COVID, uh, the COVID response I guess, and I'll just do it from food service because I wasn't involved with everything at the the wider district. Um, We were actually in a really good place. We didn't actually start to fill real problems with COVID until um, April or May from a a supply standpoint, but because remember I'm ordering some far in advance. So, you know, when when we shut down in March, I had um, April's food. The rest of March and, and April's food mm-hmm. was already available to us. Um, so we were, and, and we had, and a year or two ago, <clears throat> um, we were looking at there was a possibility of a, of a strike, a teacher strike. And so we had mm-hmm. sat down as, a, as a, um, a managerial team and talked about okay, if there's a strike, how are we gonna feed kids? And then we made that a, a procedure, right? we wrote all of that down. So when we got the call March 13th and said, you know, mm-hmm. if we shut down, if we go into quarantine, how will we feed kids? We were able to say, oh, we've already got that plan.
1: Mm-hmm. So we
2: were able to immediately put that into place. So that was that was awesome um, to be able to do that. Uh, and then throughout COVID, um, we also actually played a huge role in helping some of the smaller districts um, get some of the things that they needed um, for a different, couple of different reasons. One, because of our model and having different schools that have different capabilities, we were already purchasing some items that were um, grab-and-go friendly. And so we were able to, um, some of those are, were proprietary to us. We were able to tell the distributor, hey, let anybody who needs this buy it. Uh, and so we were able to do that. Um, there are some things, so in the K-12 space, there there are producers that have minimum order quantities
0: mm-hmm.
2: that they require of a distributor before they'll send it in. Mm-hmm. So there were several times when um, we were able to kind of guarantee to the distributor, said, look, we will we'll cover, if you have to bring in a minimum quantity of X hundred of cases, but there's, you know, the region only needs the the schools in the area only need maybe half of that. Mm-hmm. Pittsburgh Public Schools will, will take that other half. We will make sure that it gets used, and so that made it possible for some districts to get some things that um, they might have struggled to get otherwise.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. I've never thought about how much influence um, because PPS is so big that it can yeah. have on other places. Um, and then there's another COVID question I'm going to ask um, from Sophie Lagore. With COVID, how did you navigate any shortages, and you, did you have to change plans as time went on?
2: We were constantly adjusting, so we had more of a problem with overage. Right. Mm. So, we, if you we have about twenty-three thousand students, uh, if you send them all home, um, only a certain number of them are going to be able to come out. Right. So we. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of students live, you know, more than a mile from the school that they go to, Um, they might live more than a mile to the next closest neighborhood school. Mm -hmm. Uh, So they might have been going to a rec center or something that maybe we were doing through city parks or the food bank um, or some other organization was, was handing out food. So they're not all coming to us, but we, again, we had food for 23,000 students um plus when we uh went into quarantine so um there was a lot of moving pieces and then of course nobody really knew when we were going to go back if we were going to, there was always a target date um again looking at what we had on hand and then looking at the target date and doing all of those forecasts then you would order more food and then we wouldn't go back so we actually ended up having some more problems with having too much food at, at various times. Um, the problems as far as shortages started coming when manufacturers couldn't produce product.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: and then we would just have to shift to a new item on the menu. Um, so we we got through it a little better than I think some did.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. And then a couple more questions. Um, Let's do it. Cynthia asked, you mentioned an educational component related to the local sourcing or good food purchasing. Is that education for the students? And then how do they feel about or contribute to those values in those
2: systems? Um, So yeah, the educational piece would be for them. So we do um, like harvest of the month, there's an educational piece. We also participate in. uh, federal program called the fresh fruit and vegetable program, uh, which is a grant program for elementary schools, which allow us to, um, we provide uh, two fruits and a vegetable, uh, fresh fruits or vegetable to the students in some form or another for them to, they can snack on it in in their classroom or they can take it home. Um, We really just try and expose them to a wider range of of produce. Um, So like we we were able to give them like dragon fruit and um, watermelon radish and things that they're just maybe either not going to see or um, not gonna have the option of having, they might not have, they're not gonna have it on their um, dining room table maybe if it's not something that they culturally they would eat. So they get exposed to that as well. Um, So, There are a lot of we're trying to work on educational piece into the the good food purchasing policy as well, and that's going to be something that our um, our outside partners are going to have to help us with um, to get that in there. Um, We're also hoping though too, as as word about this gets out, that there will be more teachers who uh, we know that there are teachers out there who have these same values um, who may not know that that we're working on it from this end as well, uh, Mm -hmm. who might be able to jump on and say oh I, I can do this from my classroom to help support that
1: yeah that'd be really fascinating to see is like a educational collective of people um, and I think too you mentioned school gardens and that's like a really cool place to start too is if you start contributing that into curriculum and stuff um, As far as uh, menu planning goes Frankie has a question here. Um, What is your strategy for reaching picky eaters and is there some kind of reward program that students can participate in for trying something new? It's a good question.
2: It is a good question. Um, So picky eaters is hard right so we know so right now we're working on um, some we want to put a pasta dish be it tortellini or ravioli, um, some sort of filled pasta, we wanna use some rosé sauce. And so um, we've been working on different recipes. Well, one thing that we know is that at the younger level, um, if there is, usually if there's green or specks in something that they can't identify as something, you know, that they're familiar with, they just simply won't touch it. So we're working on a, a, A recipe that would be palatable to the kindergarten to fifth graders, that would be speckless um, and greenless, Uh, but then, you know, for the middle school, to high schools, then we're going to, we're able to, we're trying to spice that up a little bit. So there will be um, more evident um, presence of basil and oregano or things like that in there. Um, so that's one thing that we do with picky eaters. Um, we also offer um, alternatives. So it's, it's rarely just the one item. Um, so during COVID, it's been more of that where it's this is, this is what we have and this is your choice. Um, we had to do that from a regulatory standpoint and, and uh, from a standpoint of keeping um, everybody safe. Um, but normally we have two or three different options. So if a student doesn't necessarily like what's on the main line, um, there's something that we'll, we try to put popular items on that alternative menu. So then the student will be able to grab something from there and, and still get fed. That's our big thing is making sure we feed kids.
1: Yeah, make sure they get their food. Um, and then I guess a follow-up question Frankie had, uh, which we kind of touched on, but I think it's good to ask. Do students have an opportunity to become more familiar with ingredients by doing cooking activities in class? or I guess any other kind of cooking related uh, education?
2: So there to my knowledge is not other than we have two um, trade programs. Um, one is in, oh, I'm gonna get the schools wrong right now. I believe Westinghouse and Carrick are the two mm-hmm. um, high schools that have culinary programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shouldn't know which ones they are. So we're actually working with them. We just got a grant with the Pennsylvania um, Farm to School, grant, um, which um, they are developed for developing uh, USDA recipes for some fresh produce. Mm-hmm. Um, we're actually, we drew asparagus. And so we are working with the culinary arts students um, to develop recipes that will then um, be tested in the schools. And we actually end up whittling that down to two recipes that meet the regulations of the USDA. And then um, those recipes will then, this is a, it's a two-year grant. Then we kind of do a recipe swap with other districts in the area that in the state that were granted or given this grant um, and we'll test each other's recipes. And then all of those recipes will be submitted to USDA um, and be part of their larger database of recipes that will be accessible to um, any school district or anybody that wants to go on their website and pull those um, down. And so it was, this was a great opportunity for us to get with at least some of the students um, that are interested in cooking and knowing more about cooking, um, giving them a chance to be part of this process of choosing what um, can be on the menu, um, and also kind of give them some recognition in the community uh, on the work that they do. So um, that's pretty awesome. But yeah, there's you know like homec when when the the way when when we. Way, um, long time you know probably 10 15 years ago now so it's a sad thing it's
1: yeah i love Tomek. oh my goodness making cookies for class okay (laughs) (laughs) um yeah that's really fascinating to hear about the farm to table grant and um just my own curiosity are there other schools who drew a different item
2: Yeah, so they actually, um, you put in your grant and then there's, I want to say five or six different ones. So I remember butternut squash was one and mushrooms was another. Mm -hmm. Um, And then they also gave you choices on, or they assigned you a grade category. So we got high school, but it could have been middle middle school or elementary.
1: All right, so we're wrapping up here. I've got one final question for you and then I'll hand it over to Ani. Okay. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Jell-O? <laughs>
2: um, I can tell you a lot of bit about Jell-O but given time of constraints. Um, so yeah, I did um, a couple of different papers and presentations on Jell-O while I was at Chatham. Um, I So I moved to Pittsburgh from Utah
0: consumer of jello in the uh, country.
2: And so, in fact, jello was the first uh, snack, state snack in the country. And that was Utah made green jello, their, uh, their state snack. Um, And Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee, when he was in office, um, actually had every Wednesday had jello with the senator. And so you could, you could go in and have jello with Senator Mike Lee. Um, so yeah, I, I have a lot of uh, experience with jello just growing up as close to the jello belt that I did. Yeah. Um, and it's it was good, jello was good to me through my, my career there at Chatham.
1: Oh yeah, I do love uh, one of our things that we make every year, is strawberry pretzel jello salad. If anyone's had that, it's delicious. <laughs> All right, thanks, Malik, so much for talking with me. Um, this is really fascinating stuff and uh, we appreciate you for coming on. I'm gonna
0: hand it over to Ani now. Yeah, awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, so I have to ask, what's your favorite flavor of Jell-O?
2: <laughs> uh, orange is my favorite flavor, followed closely by lime. Ooh, okay.
0: So you're not afraid of green Jello? No, like
2: not at all, okay.
0: not at all. Awesome. <laughs> Perfect, well, thank you guys so much for joining us and sharing your expertise, both of you guys, I really appreciate it. Um, so Chatham community and friends, if you wanna see what it takes to be in Lexi Seed as a student moderator for future episodes, or if you would like to be a future guest like Malik, um, please click the link posted in the chat to fill out the submission form. You can also email us at craft@chatham.edu for further information. If you have suggestions for future guests or topics, feel free to access that link as well, even if you're like, I don't think that's for me, but let's volunteer this person. We love those as well. (laughs) Uh, A survey should pop up as soon as this webinar is ended. Please fill it out to give us feedback. And the link will also be sent in a follow-up email as well. Uh, Of course, follow us on Instagram and on Facebook at Craft Chatham. And then stay tuned for next week's episode, Pierogi, you can tell I'm not from Pittsburgh, Pierogi to Pecora, <laughs> the transformation of Erie's immigrant food culture. As student moderator, Peter Zimmer talks with Delena Grassinger, Director of US Community for Refugees and Immigrants about the evolving food culture in Erie, PA. This episode will air at 2 p.m. And of course is a free event, so invite your friends. Again, thank you guys so much. I hope you guys have a great rest of the day, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.